So obviously there's a lot that we don't agree on in our country today. There's a lot we don't agree on in our community today. It's not just a Washington, D.C. deal. It's a Murray-Kentucky deal as well. There's a lot, I'm sure, that as you spent some time with family this week, you didn't agree on either. I mean, that's just part of it, right? There's a lot of things we don't agree on, but we understand, we all know we live in a not-so-United States of America right now. It's not the worst it's ever been. There's a little thing called the Civil War, so let's not get carried away. But it, it, isn't, um, it isn't the kind of environment or culture right now that I think any of us wish we had in our country and in our community, and uh, maybe for some of you even within your own family. And so what do you do about that? Specifically, what are those of us who are followers of Jesus? What are those of us who uh, call ourselves Christians? What's our responsibility and what's our role in it? Because I think we've had a responsibility and a role in creating some of the division. But the good news is the message of Jesus holds the answer to how to address some of the tension and how to create a reunited States of America. So last week I introduced this simple idea that while we may not agree on a lot of things, there's something I think all of us as Americans and all of us in our communities can come around and can agree on. It's the simple idea that what's best for people is what's best. Now we don't always do what's best for people, but we all agree that we should do what's best for people and that what's best for people is actually the best thing for us to do. We don't always agree on what is actually best for people. You think that plan's best and somebody else thinks it's a different one or that policy or you know that approach or that belief or that behavior. Like We don't always agree this is what's best for people, but I think even though we don't always act on it, that we do agree, well, we should do what's best for people. I, I said last week it's kind of like parents. Parents don't always agree on what's best for their kids, but they both want what's best for their kids. And that's kind of how it is in America today. We all want what's best for people. We all know that's what we should pursue. We're just not all in agreement on how you get there. But one of the things I introduced last week was simply this idea that I think we could all agree what would be best for our country right now, what would be best for our communities right now is for us to have a reunited States of America. And yet we can't experience that unless some group of people in our country you can't even experience this in your family unless some individuals in your family are willing to lead the way to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, told us last week. This is what as he was writing to a group of Jewish people who were in the middle of a lot of racial and political and economic tensions. In the middle of all that, he wrote to them and he said, even the people who are your enemies, you should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We are the exact opposite today. We are so slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. We just shout at each other, whether you're on social media, it's like people are just shouting back and forth. You post that, so I'll post that, and you post that, so I'll post that. You know, nobody wants to have a conversation with anybody. We just want to shout at people. News channels, you pick your news channel, the same thing's going on. It seems like, you know, you coffee in the morning with a group of guys or a group of gals, and the same thing's going on. Just feels like everybody's talking at one another. Nobody is talking to one another. And James said, as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to step into the middle of that tension and model something entirely different. We have a responsibility to step in and sit across a table from someone and listen, not to be understood, listen to understand their point of view. Try to see life from their perspective. Try to see things from their seat. And the better we get at this, the bigger the difference we make. Not the better we get at making a point and proving we're right. Nobody who makes a point makes a difference. People who make a point never make a difference because in the process of making a point and proving you're right, you end up burning the bridges that lead to the influence that can allow you 
to help change someone else. So that's not the way you go. The, the way you make a difference is by being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, that being said, what I want to do today is dig in a little deeper on that idea, and I want to talk about very practically what this looks like for us to do this. Fortunately for us, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it or looked at it this way, but when you read the accounts of Jesus' life, here's what you discover. He was a master at modeling this for us. He was a master at walking into situations where there was so much racial tension, economic tension, political tension, religious tension. I mean, you name it, groups that didn't see eye to eye and groups that in some cases hated each other, didn't want to be in the same room with each other. Jesus would walk into the middle of those situations and he would diffuse the tension and he would create a sense of unity around some common ground. He was phenomenal with this. So today I want to show you an example of what he did and how he did it. And then I want to give you four steps that I think will challenge you and me in terms of what we need to do this week and over the coming weeks to help create a sense of unity once again. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just catch you up real quickly on one thing. For those of you who don't follow Jesus, what we talk about when Jesus says to do something, we feel like it is a mandate for those of us who follow him because to not do it makes us a bit of a hypocrite, and we struggle with that sometimes, but we know we have a responsibility to do it. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, we don't think you're mandated or expected to do that at all. We wouldn't expect you to follow what Jesus said. You don't follow Jesus, and you have some good reasons why you don't. So I get that, but I just wanted to tell you this. The good news for you today is that you can follow what Jesus did without choosing to follow Jesus. In other words, you can look at his example and say, I think I want to lean into that, and I think I want to try to do that myself, even if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus just yet. So this is something that I think will be applicable and helpful for all of us. So John, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, John who spent three years by Jesus' side and watched all of these interactions, watched Jesus step into so many tense, tension-filled situations and interact with different people who view things differently than him, John wrote an account of Jesus' life, and in it he records one example of this. This is such a unique situation and such a unique interaction. And if you grew up in church, you probably have heard this story. We tend to read through this today and just go, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know the story. And it's not a big deal to us. It's because we don't understand the first century context. I'm telling you, the first century readers of John's account or hears, you know, somebody would stand up and read this to them. The, the people who heard this in the first century, when they heard this account, it would have caused them all to say, whoa, whoa, stop right there. I've got some questions about that. I mean, this, what John says Jesus did was so shocking to them in the first century that it would have turned all of their paradigms, all of their belief systems upside down. So John starts by giving us a little bit of context. I'll do my best to pull us all into the first century and help you to understand where they're coming from and how they were hearing this as we go along. Here's the context John gives us in John chapter 4. It says, so he, talking about Jesus, John was with Jesus when all this happened, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And then John makes this comment, which just seems offhanded to us. Now he had to go through Samaria. So let me give you a little context for this. Imagine the nation of Israel. It is a long and narrow piece of land, okay? And in the first century, it was divided up into three parts. You had the lower region, which was called Judea, and that's where some of the famous places you've heard of are located, places like Jerusalem, or Bethlehem. Those places are in Judea. In the top northern part of this piece of land, there was a region called Galilee. And Galilee is where Jesus spent a lot of his time. Galilee is where he grew up. It had places like Nazareth. It had places like Capernaum. They were located in Galilee. And then there was this middle part of the country, and it was known as Samaria. 
Now, what was interesting is in the first century, if a Jewish person wanted to travel from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north, it would have made sense. We would look at a map and say, well, just go straight up there. I mean, they didn't have cars. They didn't have trains, obviously. They were on foot, many of them. Some of them were on donkeys. Maybe a few were on horses. It was difficult, difficult travel. And so you would say, well, just the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Just go straight through Samaria and you'll get to Galilee. But that's not what any Jew in the first century did. In spite of the difficulty of travel, they would circle around to the edge of their country. The Jordan River was uh, bordered right over here, and they would go right along the edge of the Jordan. Sometimes they would cross the Jordan, go around Samaria, and then come back into Galilee. When they were going from Galilee to Judea, they would do the exact opposite. In spite of the fact that it was extremely difficult for them to travel. Now, why in the world would Jewish people in the first century go out of their way to avoid Samaria? Well, the answer to that question goes all the way back 700 years prior. If you go all the way back to your history, to your Middle Eastern history, there was something that was very, very important that happened in 722 B.C. 722 B.C., the Assyrian army, Assyria was, uh, the empire then was maybe the most powerful empire in the world at that time. The Assyrian army invaded Israel, but particularly they invaded that central area of Israel that's now known as, or was then known in the first century as Samaria. That's where the Jewish capital was at the time. The Assyrian army was led by their king, who was known as Sargon II. Okay? Sargon II brings his army in. They capture and they conquer the central area there of Israel. And once they're done conquering it, Sargon, according to his own Assyrian records, says that he took 27,290 Jews from that area and he deported them back to the Assyrian Empire and then he spread them out throughout the empire as slaves, sold them off as slaves. Meanwhile, he left some Assyrian people there in Israel, right there in the central area, to make sure they were to rule and to govern and to populate the land so they would continue to do what Sargon wanted them to do. So, for 700 years, the Assyrians are living there among the Jews, and you could guess what happened. Over a period of time, the Jewish people who are living there in this central part that became known as Samaria, the Jewish people begin marrying the Assyrian people, and this intermarriage leads to a new mixed race that became known as the Samaritans. Now, the Jewish people who are living up in Galilee and the Jewish people who are living down in Judea are full-blooded Jews, and from their point of view, for these Jewish people to marry Assyrians, the enemy, it is, it is beyond what they can stand. The disdain level for Jewish people who would marry non-Jewish people was through the roof. And so there develops this extraordinary bias and prejudice and hatred. That is not too strong of a word. Between Jewish people in the north and the south and these half-Jewish, half-Assyrian people who are living in the central part of the land. The hate and the disdain were so great that not only did Jews not want to travel through that land, they didn't want to set foot on their dirt, but the Jewish people and the Samaritan people wouldn't worship at the same place. The Samaritans created their own place of worship. The Jews still had their place of worship at Jerusalem. They wouldn't, they wouldn't join together even to worship. They wouldn't sit down and have a meal together. When they had to travel through each other's land, they would stay as far away from each other as possible. It was so bad that history tells us that Jewish people and Samaritan people wouldn't even share the same cup to get a drink of water. So if a Samaritan person drank out of a cup, a Jew would never touch it again. Didn't matter how thirsty that person was. That Jew was not going to defile themselves in their mind. 
by drinking out of a cup that had touched the lips of a Samaritan. There was extraordinary hatred between these groups. And so it's in that context, after 700 years of that kind of prejudice and bias and hatred developing and getting so deep-seated, it was after 700 years of that that John writes to his first century friends, and he says, Jesus was going from Judea to Galilee. Implication, but he wouldn't go around like all the other Jews. No, he had to go straight through Samaria. Not had to in the sense of there's no other way to get there. Not had to in the sense of, you know, it's, it's obligated, that's just what I have to do. No, he had to in the sense of responsibility. He had to in the sense of, John is telling us, Jesus felt that it was vital for him and his mission to spend some time in Samaritan country as a Jew among people that his Jewish people wanted nothing to do with. That Jesus had to interact with this group of people known as Samaritans. And Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus had 12 guys, more than that actually, who followed him around who were Jewish. And he's about to leave his message in the hands of these people. And he knows, not only do the Samaritans need to know that message, but these Jewish followers of mine have to see and understand how I view these Samaritans if they're going to be able to steward this message of mine well. And so because of that, Jesus did what no other Jew would do in the first century. He chose to go through Samaria because he knew you can't change what you don't confront. You cannot change what you don't confront. And he was willing to risk his reputation. He was willing to risk his honor among Jewish people in order to confront this prejudice and this bias and this hatred that had existed. And so John, who's on the journey, John, who's one of these Jew- Jewish followers, now that I've given you the context, can you imagine? These are good Jewish boys and you know, good Jewish young men and women. Can you imagine how uncomfortable they must have been? Can you imagine the, the conversations that had to take place? It's like, he's going there. He's going there. Are we going to go with him? Are we still going to follow? I don't know if we should. Mama's not going to be happy if she hears, you know. It's, it's like there's, there is way more at stake. I mean, it's, it's not exaggerating to say some of these young men and women could have been disowned by their family because they spent too much time in Samaria. I mean, this creates some tension for them. And there goes Jesus. And John says, well, okay, here we go. We're going to follow him. We're going to see what he does. And then John tells us, here's what happens. Continues on. So he came to a town in Samaria, Jesus did, called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And then John tells us Jacob's well was there. Let me just pause right here because this is, this is interesting. It didn't matter if you were Jew or you were Samaritan. Here's one of the things you could agree on. Jacob is a big deal. You could agree on that. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the big three. You know, they were the big three for Samaritans. They were the big three for Jews. Everybody revered Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and wherever they had lived and whatever they had started and whatever wells they had built. And so there's a well there, and it's located in Samaria. And Jacob had originally built the well, and so for you know, thousands of years, this well had been used. But while Jews and Samaritans didn't want anything to do with each other, they could come to the same opinion on the fact this, this well, this land, this territory... It matters. It's a big deal. It was Jacob's. So John says, Jesus arrives at this well. He continues on. He goes on, he says, And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. Now, a little bit about wells. Again, we don't understand this or think of this um, in these terms today. 
But a well in the first century was like a common social gathering place. Think of it like a coffee shop, okay? So people would show up early in the morning or late at night to draw their water because you're in the Middle East. The Middle East at noontime, I mean, blazing hot. It's like being in the middle of the desert. You, you know, people didn't do that. It was so uncomfortable. But people would go early in the morning before it got too hot or late in the evening after it cooled off. They would all gather, everybody from the community. You'd catch up on things. You'd chat with people. You'd talk to friends while you're waiting your turn to draw the water out of the well and take your water back home for the next few hours. So this was a common gathering place, but no one will be there at noon. Noon's in the middle of the heat. The well is in, all, for all practical purposes, it's closed at noon, okay? Jesus shows up in the middle of the day, noon. He sits down by the well. There's nobody there. He's not expecting, or the disciples, nobody's expecting for there to be anybody there, which means there'll be nobody there to help them draw water. There'll be nobody there who has the equipment, the utensils necessary to get some water. But Jesus pauses to catch his breath. Jesus pauses as they're going through this journey to get a little bit of rest. And then, because it's noon, this next little piece of information, it was so surprising to everyone. John goes on and he tells us, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Pause. If you were hearing this in the first century and you knew what first century Jewish and Gentile people knew, you would have immediately raised your hand and said, whoa, whoa, just stop right there. What's she doing at the well? Nobody goes at noon. What's she doing at the well? And the only explanation for why a Samaritan woman would be at a Samaritan well in the middle of the day is because she's not even accepted and included among her own people. The only reason you show up at the well when the well is closed is because you don't want to show up when it's open and have to interact with all the other people who are there. So clearly, and if you read the rest of the story, you see this is true. This woman had so many things in her past that she not only felt devalued by any Jewish person she met, that was true of all Samaritans, she felt devalued by the way her own Samaritan people treated her. So she's showing up at the well every single day at noon, so she doesn't have to interact with anybody. doesn't matter how hot it is, doesn't matter how miserable it is. She'd just rather do that, is have to take another hit to her dignity by being around her fellow Samaritans. So when she shows up at the well, the thought that runs through her mind is, what in the world is he doing there? Because it's obvious, there is a Jewish man. By the way Jesus dressed, it was clear. And she's thinking to herself, oh no, this is the exact reason I show up here. And now, I've got to deal with this. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel inferior because there is a Jewish man who's there who's going to make me feel inferior because I'm a Samaritan and because I'm a woman, and that's just the way it works in our culture. But before she can, you know, do the duck and dive deal, you've done that in stores sometimes, haven't you? You see somebody and you're like, oh no, that's an hour and a half conversation. You try to duck, you know what I'm talking about? Before she can do that, Jesus spots her. And John says when she shows up at the well, he does something remarkable. The verse continues and says, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? I can't stress how shocking this was. How it must have stopped her in her tracks. That a man would ask a woman for a drink, but more specifically a Jewish man. Who clearly seemed superior thought they were superior, would ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. That a Jewish man is basically saying, I am willing to drink from your cup. Yeah, but nobody does that. I know, I know, but I'm not like all other Jewish men. I am willing to drink from your cup. 
I mean, this was so shocking. I was trying to think, what in our culture could equate to this? And maybe if you go back in your history to the 40s or the 50s in the Deep South, if you'd walked into a restaurant and you had seen a black man and a white man sitting at a table together sharing a meal, maybe that would equate to the reaction people had when they saw and heard this. It would just cause everybody to go, whoa, what's going on here? Cause everybody to freeze in their tracks. Or if you think about Rosa Parks when she was on that bus and she refused to give up her seat, caused everybody to go, whoa, whoa. Maybe it's at that level that people felt this in the first century when they heard, wait a minute, a, a Jew, not just a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi would ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. Jesus and, you know, he's doing something. He's just blowing through cultural, racial, gender barriers in the first century. He's just shattering them all with one simple question. And then I love this. John adds a little bit of information for our sakes, for the sakes of anybody who would read this. He said his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, I don't know why he put that in there, but for whatever reason, he wanted us to know, hey, me and Peter and Andrew and James and Thomas, all all of us guys, we weren't there when this happened. We saw it when we got back. You'll see that in a minute. We heard what had happened. We weren't there. Now, this is just total speculation on my part. But I could imagine John's writing this, and he's thinking to himself, what are the odds my mama will ever read this account? I don't know, but just in case, I, I want to be able to go to Hanukkah next year. So, uh, mama, we were in town buying food, okay? We would have never done that ourselves. I don't know why. He's probably better than that. But, but he wants us to know, wait a minute, we were all gone, and here Jesus is in this moment. And he's just asked a question that stops this woman in her tracks. So shocking. And you'll understand this when you see the response of the woman. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, "You're, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John drops a little another tidbit of information in in case readers one day didn't know the context. He said, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. He says, you just need to know how crazy this was. So crazy that this Samaritan woman hears Jesus and doesn't go, oh, this is incredible, let me get you some water. No, the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, how can you as a Jew ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? To which I think Jesus would have said to her, I'll tell you how I can ask you. I can ask you because I came to communicate and to demonstrate who God is and what he's like. As a matter of fact, I am God in human flesh. And I can ask you for a drink because I know Jewish people view you as inferior. I don't view you that way. I know Jewish people see no value, honor, dignity, or worth in you as a Samaritan woman. I don't see you that way. I see you as someone who is created in the image of God, and we're on a level playing field, you and me. It doesn't work that way in our culture. I get that. I just want you to know between you and me, it works that way. Between you and me, there's a level playing field between you and me. You don't have to feel inferior. I respect you just as much as anyone else. Now, what is so surprising or interesting to me about this is that Jesus in this moment was in a position of power and influence. According to the cultural norms, he was a man and he was Jewish, which meant anyone in his culture would have seen him, including this Samaritan woman, as superior to her. But he did not leverage his perceived superiority or his power and his influence for his own benefit. He was proactive 
at stepping across the divide and reaching a hand to the other side and saying, hey, I just want you to know we're on a level playing field. I just want you to know I respect you. He made the first move with her. For those of us who follow Jesus in the current culture and climate that we're in, I'm convinced we have the exact same responsibility and we should follow the exact same model that Jesus set for us. That it is our responsibility to break barriers and to build bridges in our current climate. When you think about somebody in your family who's at odds and there's tension there, you think about somebody at your workplace, you think about somebody in your community, in your neighborhood, think about somebody on social media and it's just like, oh man, there's, so, there's a wall there, there's so many barriers there and there's just so much tension because they believe this and I believe that. They view it this way and I view it that way. Well, they did that and I would have never, you know. Whenever you find yourself in one of those moments of tension or division, as followers of Jesus, it is our responsibility to step into that, to step across the divide, to reach a hand to the other side, and to take the initiative to be proactive about breaking barriers and building bridges with those people. Because that is what Jesus did time after time after time after time. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to read you the next few verses, but there is a fascinating conversation that happens between Jesus and this woman. And in the conversation, all the barriers come up. There are re religious barriers that are brought to the surface. And she begins talking about, well, you guys think you should worship God over there, and we think we should worship God here. And you know, one day the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to prove who's right. When the, this was her point of view. This was all Jewish and Samaritan people's points of view. The Messiah is going to come, and he's going to make a point. The Messiah is going to come, and he's going to prove who's right and who's wrong. Jesus said, you missed it entirely. That's not why the Messiah is coming. By the way, he looked at her and said, I'm, I'm he. I'm the one. But I'm not here to make a point. I'm here to tear down those religious barriers. Moral barriers were conversed about. Jesus looked at her, and the woman said, I don't have a husband. He said, hi, you're right. You've had five. Five of them have chosen to divorce you. Because a woman in that culture didn't have the right to divorce a man, only a man. And it didn't matter if she did anything or not. Jesus said, you've had five men who have dismissed you. And now you're living with a guy who's not even your husband. But that moral barrier that other people look down on, it's why you're here at the well at noon. I don't view it that way. You can navigate around, through, we can tear down that barrier. He has this fascinating conversation where as he talks about all these barriers, he's full of grace and truth at the very same time. And then, as the conversation is nearing an end, she realizes, oh my gosh, this may be who he claims to be. How in the world would he know all these things about me if he wasn't the Messiah? I didn't tell him any of this. This is fascinating. And so Jesus' disciples are just starting to show back up with the food, and they see Jesus and this woman talking. They're thinking, oh, what is he doing? We're going to be in so much trouble. And she turns and she walks off. And as she leaves, John tells us this is what she did. Then leaving her water jar... She just forgot what she was there for. It didn't matter anymore. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And verse 30 tells us, They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now meanwhile, John tells us that while the woman's down there telling all the people about this conversation she's had, the disciples are showing back up looking at Jesus saying, What were you doing? You were talking, what were you talking to her for? And Jesus has to explain to them, no, 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 you missed it. You missed it. In your culture, you may be superior to her, but you're not in the eyes of your heavenly Father. I'm breaking down barriers. 
I'm building bridges. And that's what you ought to do as well. And the disciples are scratching their heads going, we don't get it. We don't get it. This is so anti-Jewish belief. I mean, this is 700 years of deep-seated barriers that, Jesus, you're just blowing up and tossing aside in a moment. We don't get it. Meanwhile, the woman's down there telling everybody in Sychar about what's happened, and they all head out. They want to see Jesus for themselves. If for no other reason you're telling me there was a Jewish rabbi who was willing to talk to you, a Samaritan woman, and take a drink from your cup, are you kidding me? They've got to meet this man. So they show back up, and here's what John says happens. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony that he told me everything I ever did. Keep reading. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he, Jesus, stayed two days. Can you imagine how uncomfortable that was for Matthew and Peter and James and John? They're going, good grief. Okay, the conversation was one thing. All right, we got it. We got it. Can we just move on and get to Galilee? And Jesus says, no, I don't think you got it yet. So we're just going to take a mini vacation right here in the middle of Samaria. Y'all just settle in. Y'all have a lot of conversations. You know, I'm picking up the tab. Y'all go get coffee and learn a little bit about them. I mean, this had to be so uncomfortable for them. But Jesus had a point, and his point was this. You have to understand, Jewish people, that it is your responsibility to step across the divide, to reach a hand to the other side, that if you're going to follow me, Peter, if you're going to follow me, John, that my message is one of reconciliation. It's one of breaking barriers. It's one of building bridges. So John continues on. He says, because of his words, many believed. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. A couple things real quick. You want to know why Jesus did this, why he had to go through Samaria? I think one, because he had to demonstrate. He was, it was so imperative upon him to demonstrate to everyone that in the eyes of their Heavenly Father, everyone has equal value, dignity, and worth. Everyone deserves respect. Everyone's made in the image of God. And he could stay in Galilee or in Judea and he could talk about and teach those things. But nobody would get it until he went to Samaria and he showed it. And the other reason he had to go is because those people needed to know that the Savior of the world had come for them, not just for people like him. They had to see with their own eyes the Savior of the world is for us, not just for the Jews. See, those of us who follow Jesus, we can talk about how we're for people. We can talk about how God is for people. We can talk about how everybody matters to their Heavenly Father. But I'm telling you, our words are empty if our actions don't demonstrate it. Our words are empty if we're not stepping across divides, reaching a hand to the other side. And saying, I know there's some cultural barriers here. It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to break right through those barriers and I'm going to build some bridges because you matter to your heavenly Father, so you matter to me. And anytime we find ourselves in a position in our culture where we have a little bit of power, a little bit of influence, where maybe we have a a little bit of an advantage, Jesus would say, you take that advantage, that power and influence, and you use it to show dignity, value, and worth to people that others consider to be lesser than. That's the message he sent that day. 
That's the message he sent throughout his whole ministry. And then he died and he rose again and he left this message in the hands of his followers. And guess what they did? They kept struggling with the tension. The early church, they had tension after tension after tension because they had Gentiles and Jews all of a sudden who were both a part of the same church and they're going, we've despised each other for years culturally. Now we've got to figure out how to be in the same church and love one another. And they had slaves, people who'd been born slaves, spent their entire lives slaves, and people who were free, in some cases people who were masters, and they're going, okay, now we're all in the same church and we're following the same Jesus. We've got to figure out how to love one another. And there were men and there were women who in the culture were viewed differently unequally, and yet they're in the church and they're worshiping together and they're following the same Jesus and they're going, we got to figure out how we love one another. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, a few years after this instance, he wrote a letter to some Christians in Galatia. And that church was trying to figure all this out. To their credit, they wouldn't let it go. They kept wrestling with it. And so Paul reminded them of this. Here's what he wrote. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith, which means there's a level playing field. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the cultural norms. He just sees everybody's equal and everybody is valuable. And then he makes this statement. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. The race doesn't matter anymore. There's something bigger that unites you. There's neither slave nor free. Your status in the culture, it doesn't matter anymore. There's something bigger that unites you. Nor is there male and female. Gender doesn't matter because there's something bigger that unites you. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, on the night of his arrest, Jesus sat down with his closest followers and he said, here's what you're to do. There's a new ethic to live by. You're to love one another the way I have loved you. But those one another's aren't just your Jewish one another's. They're not just one another's that look like you and believe like you and behave like you. When he said love one another, Paul's saying Jesus meant you love all the one another's. You love one another's who are like you, one another's who aren't, one another's who think the way you do, one another's who don't. You just love one another because we have a stronger common ground than any of our differences. And it is we're following the one who gave his life for all people. So what's this look like for us practically? For those of you who are followers of Jesus, if you're not, I hope you'll lean in and you'll, you'll try to do this as well. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, what does it look like practically? To step across the divide, to reach a hand to the other side, to try to engage in these situations and circumstances where there's tension and division and bring unity to it. Well, there are four things Jesus did in all of his interactions that I want to point out to you real quickly. And my challenge to you is to figure out which of these four is your next step to take. Here's the first one. we got to listen. We talked about this last week. We have to listen. We've got to learn to sit down and listen to someone's story because in listening, we communicate value, dignity, and worth. When is the last time that you intentionally chose to have a conversation with someone who's on the other side of an issue from you? And you sat down with them and you said, hey, we may not see eye to eye on this, but I want to see it from your point of view. Tell me your story. Tell me why you feel the way that you do. When's the last time you had a conversation like that? When's the last time you had a dinner with someone of a different race? Where you invited somebody over to your house that was a different economic status? Or maybe viewed things differently than you religiously? When's the last time you had one of those conversations? For a lot of us, this is where we've got to start. Let me just intentionally reach across the divide and have a conversation where I listen. And if you will have one of those conversations, I'm going to tell you, as those people start sharing their points of view, you may not agree with it. 
you may actually sit there and think, this is so not what I believe. And as you listen, I want to give you three words when they're done sharing that you should say. Are you ready? They are not, you are wrong. Don't say that. That doesn't work well. Tell me more. That's what you should say. After they share their point of view and it's so opposite of what you believe, don't try to make a point. Don't try to bring up your points and your argument. No, no, no. Just stop and say, tell me more. How did you arrive at that point of view? Tell me about your experiences and what led you to believe what you do. It's powerful. If you would just listen and then follow it up with, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Because by listening, you are communicating to someone, even if you don't agree with them, that I value you. I value you more than I value my view. I value you more than I value my position. And I'm not going to put my view above you. I'm never going to let my view condone me treating you as less than equal or as less than valuable. So we got to start by listening. The second one is befriend. Befriend. This is what Jesus did so well. He didn't just show up in these circles with people who were different than him and listen to their stories and have a conversation and say, thank you, I learned a lot, and then go back to where he was comfortable. Jesus circulated and lived among and befriended all of these kinds of people. He would show up and he would go to parties and he would have dinner at homes and he would hang out with people who were nothing like him. It wasn't a one-time deal. It was, a, I'm going to keep doing this, keep doing this. He had the most diverse group of people around him. It's part of what got him into trouble with Jewish people because they couldn't understand, why would you spend time with those people? Why would you be friends with people like that? But he chose to befriend them because he viewed them as valuable. So let me ask you a question. If you pulled out your cell phone, this would be a great exercise for you sometime. If you pull out your cell phone and you open up your contacts and you just scroll through your contacts, how much diversity do you have there? Or how many people in your contacts believe like you, live like you, think like you, same race as you? If there's not some diversity there, then you have fallen into the trap of putting yourself in a bubble with people that you know you're going to agree with. And you haven't taken the step, I haven't taken the step to befriend people to develop friendships, to invest in relationships with people who we may never see eye to eye on some issues, but we can love and respect one another anyway. You have to listen, you have to befriend. Third, you have to care for, and here's what I mean by that. People, as you begin to have these conversations, they're going to share stories with you. They're going to share experiences with you. They're going to share pain with you that it's not your story, it's not your experience, and it's not your pain. And if you're not careful, it will be very easy for you to dismiss it as, well, that's just not, that doesn't happen to most people. Uh, that's just not, that's, that's something that, okay, that was a one-time deal, but I don't think that's normal. You can't do that. Even if it's not your experience, you should always care for and step into the experiences, stories, and the pain of someone else. Even if you don't believe or agree with the conclusions they've come to, that's fine. It doesn't change the fact that they've experienced some things and they're carrying some pain or they're carrying a story that is not yours and it's shaped them. And part of showing value, dignity, and worth to somebody else is to step in and to let them know, I care for you and what you experienced, even though I haven't personally experienced it. And then the last step is to defend. It's to defend. Now, here's what I mean by that. Jesus was so good at this. I'm not saying you should defend the position of someone if you think it's wrong or you disagree with it. That's not what I'm talking about. You can listen to somebody. You can be friends with somebody. You can totally disagree on a position. But just by listening to them or showing value to them doesn't mean you affirm their position. Here's what I mean. 
It means you defend the value, dignity, and worth of that individual even if you do disagree with what they do or what they believe. That you decide, I'm not going to put a view above that you right there. I'm going to defend you. Other people are attacking you, and they're, they're treating you as if you're inferior. And I'm just going to step in. I don't agree with you at all in what you're doing. I don't agree with your point of view. It doesn't matter right now because your value, dignity, and worth as a human being is way more valuable than some position. So I'm going to come to your side. I'm going to use the influence I have. I'm going to use the power I have. I'm going to use the, the uh, position I have, and I'm going to defend you and stand with you. See, moms, you, you know this. You have chances where you can do this. Something said in your family, and mom, all you have to do is say, no, 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 we don't. And the whole family lines right up, don't they? You're using your power, your influence, your position for the good of somebody else. Dad, you get to do the same thing. Some of you supervisors at work, you have opportunities to do the same thing, to step in and to stand by somebody that other people are not standing by. Some of you students have the same opportunity to step in and stand by a student nobody else is standing by and defend not what they've done, to defend not what they believe, you may disagree, to defend who they are and the value they have. This is what Jesus did over and over and over again. Listen, befriend, care for, and defend. So here's my question to you. Which of these do you need to do? Maybe you need to extend some invitations to go out and grab some coffee, to invite some people over to dinner who are different than you, and just listen to their story. Maybe you need to make some apologies. Maybe you've had some conversations in the last couple of weeks that got pretty tense, and you tried to make a point instead of making a difference, and you argued about who was right, and you hurt some people deeply, and in the process, you didn't mean to, but you communicated to them they weren't as valuable or as important as you. You dismiss them as a person, and you need to go back and make some apologies. I don't know what this looks like. It probably lands different with all of us. But if, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to do what our leader did, we have to learn to listen, befriend, care for, and defend. It is our responsibility to break barriers, to build bridges. A couple years ago, uh, when the racial tension resurfaced so strongly in our country and there were the different incidents in different places around the nation uh, black men being shot cops being shot you remember when all that was going on I realized as I was watching all this taking place and hearing the dialogue I realized wait a minute I'm a, I'm a white guy who grew up in western Kentucky who's had one experience and I have one point of view on all this but there are some other points of view that I've never been familiar with I, I've never been exposed to and I've been wrong just to sit with my point of view and not at least listen and try to understand other points of view. So I began texting and calling some friends of mine who are different races and said, hey, can we sit down and talk? I'd like your perspective on this. And they were so gracious. They were so great. They did these four things for me over the last couple of years. We've had different conversations, and they would sit there, and I would say, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask some questions, and if I ask a question I shouldn't ask, or if I say something in a way that I shouldn't say it, if something comes out and it sounds racist, you've got to call me on it and tell me. I don't know. I'm ignorant, okay? So they were terrific. They were so gracious, and we just had these very open, honest conversations where I wasn't trying to explain my point of view so much as I was trying to see things from their seats and see how they process different things that were happening in our community and in our nation. It was fascinating. 
And I got to the, you know, over the last couple of years as I got to having these conversations, I kept walking away from them going, I wish everybody in our church could have a conversation like this. I wish everybody in our church could sit and see things from different people's points of view. And then I realized, I have the microphone on Sundays. So I can make that happen. So next week, you can't miss next week, okay? Next week, three of my friends are going to join me. I've given them some questions that I'm going to ask. I've told them I don't want their answers because we are going to have a raw, candid, open conversation, particularly about race. But here's why we're having it. Because I want you to see how they do these things so well. They're extraordinary at it. I just want you to see what a conversation looks like when people who maybe have different opinions sit down and begin to talk about some of these issues. What it looks like to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It's a perfect Sunday to bring a friend next Sunday. It'll be unlike anything we have ever done before. Until then, what step do you need to take? It's our responsibility. If we're going to have a reunited States of America, for those of us who follow Jesus, to step across the divide and reach a hand to the other side, and to break down some barriers, and to build some bridges. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to know what to do with this. Help us to make some invitations, go to some lunches, have some people over. Some of us, this is so convicting because there are some divides in our family, there are some divides in friendships, there are some divides at work. And as followers of you, if we're going to follow your example, we have to take the initiative and be proactive and be the first to step across. So give us the courage to do that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.